Welcome back to Enthusiastic Witter. I'm Cody. And I'm Christopher. And this week we talk all about my adventure getting into paramotoring. Hey, this is Cody from the future. I realized as I was editing this, we didn't give a very good description of exactly what a paramotor is. So what it is, is just a motor that gets strapped to your back with a propeller on it, and you use a paraglider wing to fly. Uh, if you want to kind of get a better picture of what uh, paramotors are, uh, just do a quick Google search or YouTube search. They're all over the place, and uh, you will have plenty to watch. All right, let's get into the episode. So, let's see, tonight, well, yesterday and tonight, I got up for just some absolutely gorgeous flying in my paramotor. There was almost no wind. Last night was probably my favorite of the two. I uh, got up, and uh, my brother works at the same place I do, which is like a mile from the airport. Mm -hmm. And uh, sometimes he works outside in the yard, driving a yard truck, so I fly over, and uh, he usually usually waves when i fly over oh that's neat and uh so i uh and so the people there must really wonder what's up with me because i'll fly over and just drop down low like behind the back of the uh facility and fly around for a little bit and then fly off so they must wonder what's going on he said that one of the other yard drivers apparently they know that we fly so one of the other yard drivers said to him is your brother okay or is he just rubbing it in (laughs) Because I, you know, I just kind of did some little spirally loopy loops down to, uh, mm-hmm. you know, maybe a hundred, two hundred feet above the ground, and waved at them and flew off. And is there uh, any kind of minimum I, height restriction for you to fly at as a paramotor pilot? No, there's maximum heights, and there's areas we can't fly over. Like we can't fly over congested areas, towns, settlements, things like that. So, I. I always make sure not to be over any buildings or anything like that. So there's a nice swampy area between the the airport and where we work, and then I so I just fly around in the swampy area behind the uh, facility, and it's perfect. Nice. And then uh, last night I took off from there, and actually he, my brother, texted me saying that he had seen a C-130 military plane in the area. Ooh, that's cool. And so I. Don't usually have. Oh, we see them all the time because we got an air force base near mm-hmm. here. But um, it's not necessarily cool when you're flying an ultralight, <laughs> especially a paramotor with a fabric wing that could collapse if you end up with turbulence. Usually they're high enough; it's not a problem. And we're in a military operations area, which is not restricted. You can fly in it unless they have a temporary flight restriction up. But for the most part, you can fly pretty much any time, um, and they're supposed to suspend operations if they see other aircraft in the area so it's no big deal and we rarely ever see other aircraft um we just have to stay out of the class d airspace which is the tower because the 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 military the air force base has their own tower obviously Mm -hmm. to control their area so there's it's that's called class d airspace there's different classes of airspace and they have different rules that you have to follow we can fly in class g and e anytime really um 
but class D, for example, we have to have permission from the tower before we fly there. And I don't know what the other kinds are. Those would be more around like the really big airports where there's going to be like jumbo jets and stuff landing. So I would never fly there anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just said, uh, I don't have that on my phone normally because I just don't need it. But I turned it on because you can turn it on and then they just charge you by the minute later and charge you like $1,000 for a minute of <laughs> data. But uh, I turned it on to see... Uh, what the notams or it's spelled n-o-t-a-m it stands for notice to airmen mm-hmm. and so they'll put out a thing um to tell you about their active hours because normally they shut down at five o'clock i believe and so then you can fly through there no problem because there's no you know the class d airspace isn't active anymore. oh okay um because they just do their military operations like nine to five or whatever but when they have special things going on they'll put out a notum so that people will know that something's going on and so I looked it up, and they actually have extended hours. But there were no TFRs, so I was able to still fly. I didn't see any military aircraft or any other aircraft at all during my whole flight. But I decided to stay low just in case they were flying over. I didn't want to interrupt their activities, whatever they were doing. Um, so I stayed pretty low, like just 500 feet and below or something like that. Usually it, their notum says from the surface to 7,000 feet. And then I think 8,000 is something. They're doing something as well. So I don't know what's up with that 1,000 feet if that's for... I don't know if that's where you're supposed to fly when you fly through or what the deal is. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, they're never, you know, more than... Or never lower than probably 2,000 feet, I would guess. Mm-hmm. I mean, technically they can fly that low if they want to, but I have never seen them that low just because... Yeah. Um, you know, flying jets and other things or large aircraft that low to the ground is going to annoy a lot of people because they're so loud. Mm-hmm. And uh, not to mention, you know, they try to be safe and have a, a, the ability. Although I don't know with a jet if you could uh, land it in a field because, <laughs> you know, in smaller aircraft, you always try to keep a landing spot in sight, right. you know, in case you have an engine out or some emergency and you can land in a field if you need to. I don't know about jets, though, if they could bring it down in a field or if they would just be out of luck at that point and they would just eject or whatever. I don't know. Or like a C-130. Although C-130s are designed to land in pretty tight spaces, but still, I don't know if they can land in a cornfield very well. Well, I mean, those are those are huge, right? Yeah, they yeah. are. Um, but anyway, I just tried to just stay a couple hundred feet and below so that I wasn't in their way at all. And like I said, I didn't even see any other aircraft, but I went to check out a uh, sand mine that I didn't know existed near the uh, Ocean Spray plant. I don't know if we can mention products on here or not. I suppose we won't have any <laughs> issues. Not a sponsor, just in case. That's right. Um, um, yeah, so uh, I flew over the Ocean Spray plant, which, you know, they that's the plant where they uh, process cranberries because we have a lot of cranberries in the mm-hmm. area. So I've never been actually at the plant, so I don't know exactly what they do there. I know they make uh, juice, cranberry okay. juice there. Because uh, we have friends that have cranberry marshes, and they uh, that's where they ship them to. Um, they had these big ponds outside with water that was flowing through them. I don't know what those are for, if that's like they use the water to clean their cranberries, and then they send them out there and like filter it and reuse it or what the deal is. But it's kind of neat flying over there. Mm-hmm. And then I flew over the sand mine, which are always cool to fly over because there's always something interesting going on like when i flew over they had their conveyor belt and they were piling sand up and that's for uh, frack sand uh, oil mining if uh, anybody is unfamiliar with that um, a lot of sand mines popped up in this area in the last eight or ten years 
Um, so they've just got massive piles of sand, and usually they're near a railway so that they can cart it off to wherever they're drilling. Um, so there's, you know, always big uh, sections of railway where they park their unused uh, train cars. Um, and then they usually have a big pond there, which I, I would assume that they use for uh, controlling any... I don't know, I guess I would I would assume, like, rainwater and stuff. That's probably where it all gets drained to. Mm-hmm. And then I would guess that they use that for maybe filtering or transporting sand somehow. So they usually always got a big pond, and it's always kind of neat to look at that and you know, how the sand is formed in there. I think they kind of... They usually have... The couple I've seen, they have a hose, a giant hose that runs out there and, like, it's in this middle of a... It's like this big sandbar in the middle of their pond. And I assume that's where all of the, like, waste sand goes so that they can reclaim it later. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of interesting to see the little... Like, the little stream that forms from the the pipe down to the actual water. That's neat. But... So, I, yeah, I like flying around sand mines. I don't fly over them, of course, because of ultralight restrictions and stuff. And, I mean, technically... I could fly over areas where there are no people or buildings, but I don't want to make anybody nervous, so I just fly around the edges and look at all the cool machinery and the big buildings and stuff that they've Mm -hmm. got. And from there, I went and found this big marshy area. There's a lot of nice long marsh grass growing, and there were these like thin, wispy pine trees that looked like they had waded out into the marsh, and they they got smaller and smaller the further out they got into the marsh. It was like a scene out of the mountains that you you don't see in a postcard (laughs) or something like that. It was a big marshy area. No no houses around, so I dropped down to like 5 to 10 feet above the surface and just flew real low over the marsh, and you could smell the the kind of cool marsh air. Oh, yeah. It was just really neat. And the thing I always worry about is birds. Because uh, ducks and sandhill cranes and things will make their nests in the uh, marshes. And then if they wait, too, like, they get scared when you fly over. And a lot of times they'll fly off before you even get close. But if they wait too long, I could end up running into one, which would be a big problem. <laughs> so, but I didn't see any birds that uh, flew up or got in my way. So that was cool. And then I headed back to the airport. So you mentioned the birds. Is it, when you're flying so low, is it ever a concern that you might hit something that you don't see like or is it pretty 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 easy to tell what's in front of you yeah uh, the main concern would be power lines or other short lines that people mm-hmm. might have up for some mm-hmm. reason so i'm constantly scanning for poles because you would never see the lines in time oh i see okay so and usually i fly over an area and i check it out and look for poles and stuff ahead of time in lines and then i drop down and fly real low after i know that the area is safe Wow. And I've got a couple of different runs that I know are safe hmm. that I like to try to fly. That's cool. Uh, occasionally. Yeah. Um, sometimes I'll be, like, dragging my feet through, like, the weeds or something in a field. And I'm always watching for fences because Ooh. I don't want to snag my foot on a barbed wire oh. fence or hit an electric fence. Although, technically, I'd be in the air, so I don't know if I'd get zapped by an electric fence. But stuff wouldn't be fun. Wow. So, yep, always watching for that sort of stuff. And then, you know, like like there's a run that I like to do where there's a stream that flows through these fields, so I like to fly real low over mm-hmm. it. First couple of times I was nervous that a tr- you know, little tree or something was going to pop up in my way that I didn't see ahead because it's a little windy. Mm-hmm. So I I've, I've just flew high enough that it wasn't a problem. But 
Oh yeah, always got to watch out for obstructions and stuff. And you wouldn't believe how many power lines are out there until you start flying and looking for them. Yeah. And trying to avoid them. I know you had mentioned once that in Missouri they bur- bury a lot of their uh, power lines, but uh, not up here. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. So how long is a typical flight? How far do you go? How long do you fly? Well, that's something I've kind of been paying attention to in the last two and a half years that I've been flying. So when I first started flying, I would go up for like 15 minutes and I'd just be worn out because, you know, it's a new skill that you're learning and your brain is just constantly uh, learning new things and trying to keep track of stuff. And I would just be worn out after 15 minutes. Interesting. And not to mention my arms were tired. Yeah. Um, because it's, it's a pretty complex skill to learn because you got to learn your, you know, left and right and up and down and mm-hmm. uh, trying to avoid things and exactly how much throttle you need to stay flying level and how to compensate for, you know, wind and all kinds of stuff that your brain is trying to do in the background. So is it kind of like getting a feel for like the, the muscle memory to part of it? Yeah. Yeah, a lot of it is muscle memory just for basic flight controls, mm-hmm. but then also knowing how to respond to, like, if you hit a little gust of wind or uh, some sinking air or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then also, like, coordinating how much throttle you need with a turn so that you don't lose a bunch of altitude. Mm-hmm. So that's something I've picked up over the years. So my first flights would be, like, 15 minutes, and I'd be exhausted. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was like, man, that was a long flight. <laughs> and then I slowly got to the point where... I would actually have a, a noticeable amount of gas that I had used on a flight. I'm like, oh man, I used like a whole liter of gas on that <laughs> flight. And they were getting up to like, you know, 20 minutes or something like that. And then now, lately, I've been up for like 40 minutes to an hour per flight. Okay. I just, you know, just uh, flying around the countryside and stuff. Yesterday, actually, people always ask me how long I can fly. And my standard response has been just based on what people have told me about how fast uh, they burn gas. Cause I never really paid attention to it. I always used to say about three hours. Oh, wow. And last night I actually paid attention to it. And cause I have a 12 liter tank and I found out that it uses about, uh, well, I, I was flying, it was a little windy to begin with. So, uh, not perfect test conditions, but I used about seven liters of gas in an hour and, 11 minutes okay so i really have closer to maybe two hours of flight time on a calm day if i'm not doing a bunch up and down okay still still quite reasonable yeah you know i don't think i would ever want to stay in the air for longer than two hours at a time (laughs) just because you just get fatigued just Mm -hmm. sitting that long um and uh flies about 25 to 30 miles an hour, it turned neutral with no wind, so I can go 50 to 60 miles. Okay. Most of my flights are around 30 miles or so. I uh, I have an app that uh, allows me to keep track of that. So, so is it uh, is it ever uncomfortable on your legs to, for your legs to be dangling in the air for so long, or do you get used to that? No. That was something I kind of wondered about when I first started flying, but no, I don't ever really notice it. I just, I don't know. It's weird because you would think if you were sitting in a chair for that long and your legs were dangling, it'd be uncomfortable. But yeah, no, I don't even notice it. I would think mine would like fall asleep or something. Yeah, or just stop, stop. Yeah, they don't really being attached to my body, feeling like they were there. Yeah, uh, we do move our legs a fair amount while flying because. Uh, you know, if you cross your legs or just lean more to one side than the other, uh, you'll do what's called a weight shift. So if you shift your weight to one oh. side, that'll actually cause you to start turning. And 
the paramotor that I fly is a low hook end. I don't know if they even make high hook ends much anymore, but because uh, I haven't heard about them in a long time, maybe they do. But with the lower hook ends, you get more weight shift. The uh, wing actually clips in lower down, mm-hmm. and the the metal arms that the wing connects to on the paramotor actually move up and down. And so when you lean to one side, that actually uh, makes the wing deform ever so slightly, so it actually starts huh. to turn. And then, uh, and then you add, would add your brake inputs on top of that to get it to actually turn more. So every turn, you're going to do a little bit of weight shift. So you do move them around a little bit. That's interesting. And so you do that on, on all turns? Yeah, most turns. It, most of that are going to be anything significant. If it's real shallow, I don't usually bother it. Or hmm. if it's a just something where I'm making a minor correction, I don't worry about it. But yeah, pretty much on all turns. And I think the purpose of it is it's more efficient than using your brakes because it deforms the wing and causes a turn. It actually like makes the wing, you know, one side of the wing come down a little bit lower than the other oh, wing. Okay. Uh, whereas using your brakes causes drag on one side, so you're actually losing a little bit of energy and speed. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so always recommended to use a little bit of weight shift on a turn where you might be using some energy. That's interesting. So how long did it take to learn to fly? Because like you can't, you can't. It, when you solo, it's just you. So like, yeah. how does that all work? They actually do have the option to do tandems, but uh, I did not get to do that. Um, when I first started, I bought a used machine from a guy that I know. Uh, who lives at the airport, known him for a long time. He was the guy that kind of inspired me to get into it. But then he decided to buy a uh, light sport aircraft, so he sold his paramotor Mm -hmm. to me for a pretty good deal, I must say. Uh, It was a used wing, but it still was in really great shape, and then I got the motor with it and some accessories and stuff like that, so it was a great deal. Um, But I started going for lessons, and the guy that I went to was about three hours away. So it was hard because we'd go and we'd do some stuff in the morning, training in the morning, um, and then we would break for like the, the middle part of the day just because the winds get real switchy. Mm-hmm. And then we'd come back in the evening and do some more. And we were trying to do that along with going through um, the the uh, you know ground school part of it, which is a lot of book work type stuff and things like that. Mm-hmm. And so trying to do that three hours away didn't work very well because usually we only had like two days at a time when I was off from work and he was off from work. And I also ended up having a lot of engine problems, and this was many years ago. Uh, at the time, the engine was new. It was a pretty top-notch engine, but it wasn't the greatest compared to what's uh, out there now. Mm-hmm. Anyway, it only had like 70-some hours on it, but stuff was just constantly breaking on that engine. And I eventually got to a point where I like every time I would fix something, I'd go out to the field and something new would break. So I just kind of put paramotoring down for a while. And then actually we were at uh, AirVenture in Oshkosh with you guys, and we saw the Paradigm team fly. That's right. And then I was like, oh, man, I got to get back into paramotoring mm-hmm. because it's so cool. And I had never gotten off the ground, so I went home. And that, what is that, end of July that they usually do that? Yeah, I think so. And so I pulled out my paramotor, and I just started fixing away on it and fixing away on it. And finally, in like, 
Oh boy, I had a couple of failed attempts. Uh, the, so the problem was I didn't want to go back to the instructor that I had uh, been learning from because I didn't think he was very efficient with our use of time and uh, we just didn't work very well. Uh, his teaching style. Mm-hmm. And I had gotten to the point where I was ready to do my first flight with him, but stuff kept going wrong and I never actually got off the ground. And I will say right away that uh, teaching yourself to fly is a bad idea. <laughs> Even if you're good at teaching yourself things, flying is not a good idea, but I didn't see any other options because all the other instructors were so far away. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, well, you know, I've got enough that I can do this hopefully and i i know i won't kill myself so i'll just go for it so i tried for a while and i couldn't get off the ground and then one day one fateful day in uh, november 2017 i think it was november 6th um i had just mentioned to my mother in an email that i was gonna try to go fly i always tried to notify her <laughs> when i was gonna try to fly in case i didn't check in in a couple hours they'd know to come look for me somewhere nice um and but so she decided to come out to the airport and um there was enough of a breeze that day and I got the wing up and got the engine to full throttle and I was running and running and running and then I lifted off the ground. Wow. So my first flight was probably like <laughs> ten minutes. I just went up and then I realized how really cold it is in the air oh. and I didn't have any gloves on and my fingers were freezing. Uh, I don't think my hands have been that cold since they, they were so cold. Like I got back to the ground and it took like 10 minutes to get them warmed back up cause they were just burning. Mm-hmm. So I went up and I did a quick flight. I just did a left turn and came back <laughs> around and tried to land. And of course didn't really know how to land. You know, I'd been over it with the instructor on the ground, mm-hmm. how to do it, but I didn't really know how to do it. So I just tried to come in real shallow and just kill the engine and land. And I got the flare timing all wrong and, came in and busted a prop and it was no good um because i think i didn't shut the engine off soon enough and so it would the prop was still spinning when i hit the ground and so it was all busted up okay because they they design those things where there's a little bit of clearance but if you hit the ground hard it's gonna flex and your prop's gonna hit the ground Mm -hmm. Uh, i've had several mishaps like that since props are the wood props were about 200 bucks a piece, so it was not super cheap. I think I did four flights, and I broke <laughs> broke a prop like every flight oh, no. except for one that I think I, I was able to repair it. Always on the landings? Uh, yeah, and so I did about four flights, but I was excited that I was still getting in the air, so I was like, well, I'm still moving forward. Um, so you, at that time, you had um, all the knowledge from the instructor on, like, how to take off, how to fly. You just, it didn't work out to have the instructor there to like maybe be on the radio to coach you or anything. Yeah, that's normally the way it's done is with the instructor on the radio telling you what to do. So I did these first four flights by myself. And then I found out that the guys from the Paradigm team actually only lived about an hour from where I was living. And so, yeah. And so I got in touch with them. And thankfully they were willing to work with me like evenings after I got done with work because there was no way I was going to be able to take off enough time to go through their entire class. Mm-hmm. And because th- usually the classes are about a week long to, to answer your original question. The classes are usually about a week or 10 days. Wow. Long. That's, that's short. Yeah. And, but they do it, you know, you go out and practice morning and evening every day. And then in between you're working on, you know, theory mm-hmm. and stuff like that. I make it sound like it's super academic. It's not really, but you're, <laughs> you're just, you're talking about how things work on the ground and, right. and, and stuff like that. And then you go out and actually do the hands-on stuff. Um, but thankfully they were willing to work with me afternoons and stuff when I could 
and especially because I had, you know, pretty good base knowledge of uh, flying. Mm-hmm. So rather than having to take the entire class, it was much more efficient this way. And then finally, thankfully, uh, they were able to help me get a, get up in my first flight where an instructor was telling me what to do. <laughs> and um, I tell you, it's a lot less nerve-wracking to be in the air and know that there's an instructor to help walk you through the landing. Yeah. So you know you're not going to break another prop and or yourself. Uh, it was a little scary because we were flying out of their farm, which is, they just kind of fly out of this little pasture in the back, <laughs> which is on a hill. Oh. So you're either running across the hill or down the hill to take off. But it's one of those things where if that's kind of your only experience, you don't really think about it as being that big of a yeah. deal. Uh, and it seems like a real small area to land in. And they've said, too, that their their students, like, when they fly out of their place, they can land in the field no problem, but then when they go to the airport, there's a big wide open space they can't hit the target. <laughs> so that's it's kind of like you have these restrictions, and you just gotta make it work, and your brain just does make it work. Um, so it's a little scary coming into land at their place because you come right in over the trees and power lines, and when you're oh. not familiar with the glide slopes uh, as intuitively as if you've been flying for a while, mm-hmm. you feel like you're just gonna get snagged by the power lines or your trees. And then you come in over their one shed and then land. So it was a little freaky. It took me a couple of times before I finally landed on my feet because I would always start to flare too early because I felt like I was just going to break my ankles if I didn't start flaring. Okay. They'd always tell me, you got to wait, wait, wait. But I'd start to flare probably two or three feet above the ground too early. So you want to start flaring about six feet or so. Or you start to apply pressure at that point, I should say, and you flare just before you touch down, which is just pulling all the brakes, which causes the wing to stop and stall, Uh and it burns off all that energy and just drops you on the ground nice and soft. But so I had a couple of issues where um, the first, I don't know, three or four flights with them, I didn't land on my feet. Um and I think prior to going to learn with them, I had actually bought a new engine because my old one was just gunking out all the time. So I got a new engine, my old frame, and it was a home-built frame. The guy I bought it from had built it himself from some plans and using aircraft-grade aluminum and all that stuff and some kit uh, items that he had bought. Um, and it was pretty good for the time that he built it, but there was definitely a lot more efficient designs out and is efficient just lighter well not necessarily there's like designs of you know how you can adjust things uh what angle you're hanging at so okay prop should be pushing level or aimed slightly down okay and just you know the, the one i had really wasn't very adjustable and it was a little bit heavier i think than some of the other options and just a little bulkier and the uh the way the harness was designed where you would actually like if you sat it on the ground you yourself would be sitting on the ground whereas the other ones are a little bit higher up mm-hmm. um or some of the newer ones i should say um so but thankfully they were willing to help me learn on my current equipment and then one day uh, i I actually got to the point where I landed on my feet good. One day I was driving home. I had my paramotor strapped in the luggage rack on the back of my car. And apparently this one turn I didn't realize was coming up because it was dark. And I took the turn kind of kind of hard. And like five or ten miles down the road when I got to town, I heard this grinding noise oh, coming no. from behind my car. Oh, no. So I'd been dragging that thing for like 
10 miles or something like that and didn't know it was back there because I couldn't hear it and it's aluminum so it wasn't making any sparks or anything I could see mm-hmm. and I looked in the rearview mirror and it wasn't there so oh, I no. stopped and got out and it had been dragging on the road for a long time thankfully the engine wasn't hurt at all because that was the new expensive part mm-hmm. but the frame was ground up and the uh, the harness was the straps were worn through in some places so that was unusable so I had to order a new one which came from let's see France, I believe. The engines are made in Italy, I think. I might be completely wrong on those two. I think it's France and Italy that they came okay. from. Anyway, uh, thankfully my instructors were able to order a new one because they're the dealers for the uh, frame I have, which is a McFly brand. Um, made of titanium and it's uh, the parts are real thin and it's nice and light and very efficient and I really like it. Um, mm-hmm. Good setup. Funny people will be listening to this in a couple of years if, if anybody ever listens to it. And they'll be like, oh, man, that's such old technology. But now it's it's pretty decent for uh, for now. Yeah. So I got my engine put on that. And um, I started going with them again. Uh, actually, I think that was – I think they, they generally try to get people up for like 15 flights or something like that before they send them off on their own. And that was like my 15th flight, my first flight in the new mode or the new – the new uh, frame so and i actually bought a new wing in there too because uh i'd been learning on their wing which is a larger wing mm-hmm. so i was able to slide, fly slower and it of course gave me more lift for lower speed but of course it flew slower um and then i tried the wing that i had out because my weight range was on the higher end of what that wing could take it's not that the wing would break or have any problems. It was just that it doesn't create as much lift, so you have to run a lot faster on takeoff, and your landings are going to be a lot faster, and you got to use a lot more power in the air to stay, you know, to get lift. Yeah, that makes sense. So I finally tried that wing out, and it was so fast because I was heavy on it that I decided to just buy a bigger wing because I had gained some weight since when I first bought that wing. Mm-hmm. And that wing was a top-of-the-line wing at the time that it was new, but since then, there have been so many advances in wing technology and materials and designs and stuff like that that uh, I got a, I got a slightly larger wing, but it was so much more efficient and well-designed. It was much easier for takeoff. So I flew my new machine and my new wing with them. Everything went great. Came in for landing by myself, and I'd been landing on my feet for a while. And uh, it was all good. That was kind of my final flight. It was like in October. So I finally got all my gear. <laughs> it was October. It was getting cold. And I was finally off on my own. And then, of course, the weather started getting cold. So I didn't get a lot of flying in that year. Did go up a couple of times in the winter. So is it is it just the cold or um, or is it also harder to fly? Is it easier or harder to fly when it's warmer or colder out? Well, mostly it's the comfort of the cold or the discomfort of the cold because, you know, you're up there, wind blowing in your face at 30 miles an hour. And so you got to dress up like the same you would if you were going to ride a snowmobile, mm-hmm. except that you got to try to be able to maneuver this thing on your back and run to take off. And you got boots and like three layers, three or four layers of pants and three or four layers for a coat. And then you got your hat and your helmet and you got cold air blowing in. So you got, you know, your neck's got to stay warm and you got to wear these thick gloves, but then also try to manipulate the uh, brakes and the lines for the wings and do the throttle. It's it's a whole hassle to try to fly when it's cold yeah. and everything's covered in snow up here or the ground is frozen. And so you got to take off from the pavement, which is not good for your wing. Um, 
or if you don't have snow, you can try to take off from, you know, flat bed of ground. But there, you know, if there's a little spike of dirt or something that's stick up and stuck up and frozen, uh, that can snag your lines when you're trying to take off, and the link wing won't uh, launch as well. And uh, if you try to launch from pavement, you can still get like little chunks of ice that snag your lines. So yeah, it's not a lot of fun flying in winter, mostly just because it's cold. But uh, colder air is more efficient for flying because it's denser. Mm-hmm. And so you can take off, you know, on a shorter distance, your air, your, your engine is getting a little bit more oxygen. Um, I've definitely noticed in the warmer weather, I have to run a lot farther and faster before I take off just because there's, first of all, so much water in the air from humidity. And then also because the air molecules are not as close together. That's interesting. So, so you, you took lessons or at least did some training with the paradigm team which we saw at Oshkosh, which yeah. are amazing, by the way. Yeah, actually, uh, yeah. <laughs> a, a couple of members of the team. There's uh, a couple of members in Florida. I think the other one is out, oh, boy, East Coast, Virginia, maybe? Mm-hmm. Can't remember for sure. Um, so he's one of those guys out there, the other guys in Florida, and then the rest of the team is up here in Wisconsin. So, yeah, uh, called High Five Paramotoring, just to give them a shout-out if you're interested in getting into paramotoring. Definitely check them out. They're a super nice family. It's a family... Uh, the uh, four brothers and the dad uh, that actually run the business. That's why they call themselves High Five. And yeah, they're, <laughs> I think three of them were actually in the Paradigm team are actually in a show. Wow. But, uh, That's yeah, so cool. All just phenomenal pilots. <laughs> like those guys, I've seen them take off with no hands before. Like they step <laughs> forward into the wind and, you know, the lines are hooked in. And so the wing comes up on its own and they're not guiding it. It just comes up and then they just give it throttle and take wow. off. Oh, they're so good. And I've seen them fly, you know, doing obviously aerobatics and stuff like that while they're flying. Mm-hmm. And they've had like some prototype wings and stuff that they're flying. And they're just good enough that, you know, these wings take different skills to fly because they're designed differently and things like that. And so, you know, they just learn how to handle the new wings. So do you use a, a, a specific wing if you're intending to do aerobatics? Yeah. Wings are designed differently depending on what you're planning to do with them. Um, boy, I wish I had uh, looked up the, uh, different ratings. There's, uh, I believe one, two and three. And then I can't remember, how they're rated after that but so one would be like a beginner wing super stable you know you're not you know, it's going to fly slower mm-hmm. it's going to be more resistant to collapses and things like that and then I, I believe what i have is a two um and those are going to be a little bit faster and have a little bit more maneuverability and they're going to be a little bit more prone to collapses but still nothing really to worry about mm-hmm. um and then there's going to be um your more advanced wings, which are going to be, I think they call them higher aspect ratios, so they're longer and skinnier. Okay. Um, and they're much, much more maneuverable, usually faster, and um, so you have a lot more, or you have to do a lot more uh, active piloting, I guess, uh, is what they call it, where you are constantly, you know, on the brakes and, you know, manipulating the wing so that you don't take a collapse or something like that. And you have to be constantly ready for if the wind does something funny or whatever. So you have to do more, more manual stabilization of the wing. It won't, yeah, it won't they're, like they're n- correct itself. Yeah. They're not designed to correct themselves as much as the, okay. um, as the, uh, 
lower performance swings. Um, and that's just like, you know, anything really, anything as it gets higher and higher performance, you generally had to put in a lot more manual controls yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and so those are like paramotor wings, which is a paraglider wing, but usually they're a little bit bigger if you're flying a paramotor, just cause you have that extra 60 pounds on your back. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure how the actual like paraglider wings are compared to, uh, the, you know, paramotor or para, yeah, paraglider wings that you might just fly out of the mountains, you know, catching thermals and things like mm-hmm. that. Uh, I don't know how those are designed differently compared to a paramotor wing. That's, you know, you're, where you're going to be actually providing the power and lift. So, yeah, there, I wish I could talk more about the different types of uh, gliders. I don't know a whole lot about the different designs, unfortunately. I just have a... Uh, let's see uh, the ozone is the brand and it is a roadster three i believe so it's a more of a beginner intermediate wing i guess so you trained with some of the guys on the paradigm team do they teach you how to do stunts do they teach you the aerobatics well, they do? Uh, and not as part of the class uh because that's to try to get you off the ground and being safe and then <laughs> as you pro- progress in your skills you know you can meet with them and i'm you know they'll i'm, I'm hoping at some point later this summer i actually meet with them and uh, learn some more advanced stuff now that i have a good base knowledge and you know i think i've got a little bit over 100 hours of flight time now so uh it's not a lot but it's at least enough to kind of know what i'm doing and be able to fly pretty intuitively and, and have the muscle memory to just fly without having a lot of brain input and having to think about everything I do, it, it all comes pretty naturally now. So hopefully at some point this summer, I want to meet up with them for a couple hours and learn some more advanced stuff. That's cool. There's actually courses you can take. They're called SIV courses. Um, can't remember what SIV stands for, but, um, pretty much what they do is they tow you up over a lake. with using a rope behind a boat and then once oh, you get up yeah. to i don't i don't know how high they told you from the videos i've seen i'd say probably 1500 feet or more wow. um so yeah they told you up over this giant lake and then they're on the radio and they're telling you they're walking you through instructions and i don't know, know that anybody around here does it but uh, there are there are certainly places to go for it and uh so then they're walking you through how to do these stunts huh. and um i think most of the uh Stunts end with a reserve throw, um, reserve shoot, and that's just so that you get the muscle memory for throwing <laughs> your reserve if you should end ever end up getting into hot water, so to speak, um, and then you end up landing in the water. So the hard thing is you can't really take your motor up because that and you know uh, your motor adds a whole another dimension to the flying because it's extra weight and all that stuff. Yeah. So it's a bit difficult to. I guess transition. I would assume I've never done one of the courses, but uh, you just had to be aware of that. I guess transitioning from being just on a paraglider to actually flying with your uh, motor, because they tow you up, you go through these stunts, and then you end up landing in the water, and then they come get you with a boat. So that's something I would like to do eventually, but I think that's uh, a couple of years down the road. That sounds super cool. I think you also mentioned when we were chatting recently that you have tried some basic aerobatic maneuvers on your own? Yeah, just some real basic stuff. Uh, so wing overs is one of the um, 
easier things and it's something that uh, they recommended my instructors recommended like if I want to try something try those because if you don't some of the maneuvers you have to go all the way right away or you're going to end up uh, kind of messing up the maneuver and not being in a good flying space mm-hmm. um, you know whereas wing overs you pull a little break on one side and you get the wing rocking back and forth you do like two or three pulls and then you know the wing it will surge dramatically uh, I think it comes it's hard to explain it because when I'm flying, I'm trying to just watch <laughs> the ground and what's going on. It's hard to, to tell what's actually happening to the wing. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's kind of freaky when you actually look up at the wing and see what it's doing in relation to the horizon. Because um, you pull a lot of Gs. You know, you get pushed down into your seat. The most I ever pulled was three Gs. Okay. Um, the last five or six flights that I've been flying, I've been pulling around 2.2 Gs. Um, so you, That still you seems like a lot. Side. Like. It, if you yeah. think about that actually being three times your body weight that's a lot yeah it's 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 scary at first because you know you got all these thin lines that you're attached to your wing by and it's like they, they just look like they're gonna snap uh-huh. while you're up there in the air um but then after you get used to it you realize that they're actually not going to and i think any one of those lines could hold my weight and then they're just i don't know probably 20 on a side i guess i don't know i never counted them but there's a lot of lines anyway so yeah you get the wing rocking back and forth and you pull hard and what it does is the wing will surge forward and sideways and the wing over i guess the point of it um is to eventually get it to where the wing the leading edge of the wing comes down in front of you and is parallel to the horizon and so it's horizontal uh on its so the front edge would be facing down so you're, you're point, pretty much pointed straight at the mm-hmm. ground is what I'm trying to say and and then you can actually come up a little bit higher than the wing and so you're actually pointed a little bit past straight at the ground and then you pull it over and you go the other direction back and forth and I have not gotten to that point yet but I've gotten to the point of pulling some pretty good G's like I said 2.2 G's I don't know what you'd normally pull in a full wing over but it's one of those maneuvers where you can start out small and gradually work your way up to it and you don't really need an instructor there guiding you through it there's also a maneuver called a SAT which I believe is spelled S-A-T I think it stands for safety aerobatic team that one I think you pull hard on one break and you push the riser forward on the other side and the riser is just where all the lines come together and and clip into your uh, machine or your harness um, I'm not exactly sure what happens on that. I believe one half of the wing kind of stalls because you're pulling pretty much all the brake and you just kind of spin as you come down. Wow. It's, uh, yeah, it's hard to, s- hard to describe what's actually happening without actually having done one or actually seen one and heard it, you know, like had somebody described to me everything that's going on. And I, like, I've seen them done, uh, you know, in, in the air shows or from mm-hmm. in videos and stuff, but to actually understand what's going on with the wing, I'm not at that point yet. Okay, so just That's to enough. visualize these. So with the wing over, it was like imagine if you're on a swing set and you're swinging back and forth, but where the swing is attached to, that's your wing. Uh, well, you'd be like swinging side to side, not front to back. So you start off, you pull a brake on one side, so you bank to the right or left, whichever you pull. Okay. And then you let, then you let up, and as it comes back through, so you start swinging like a pendulum underneath the I wing. I see. Okay. And of course, the wing stays above you the whole time, so you're perpendicular to the wing the whole time. Mm-hmm. 
um, and so you pull hard one way, and then it'll start to swing back, and then you pull brake on the other side, which makes the uh, the pendulum motion even worse. And so you start to go that side and further, and then you pull hard on the other side, and you you pull hard and you hold it, so that causes a turn whilst you are banking to the side, and which is what causes the wing to start diving. Oh, down. okay. Is that is so? Is so, that a move where you would progress to fully going over your wing? Uh, I think that's how they start that. So that's, that would be called an infinity tumble, where you're actually wow, that's a, going that sounds over intense. the top of your wing. Yeah, I've seen them done at the air shows, but I I don't know if any of the guys in the high five do it. I think they, oh, I forgot to mention, Paradigm Team also had a couple of guys from overseas. I can't remember. I think there was one or two guys from like Spain or something like that. Just because they're just super accomplished uh, pilots. Mm-hmm. Those are the guys doing the actual wing, or the actual, like, infinity tumbles, um, where they're actually coming up over the top of their wing. Like, if you imagine you were on a swing, mm-hmm. and you went up over the bar that's holding the swing, that's kind of what that's like. That would be scary. They look so scary. Um, yeah, and I think that's how they get those started, is they rock side to side, mm-hmm. and then they just pull real hard, and they end up going over the top. And uh, I think I mentioned on a previous episode, you can do a thing called gift wrapping yourself, where if you <laughs> don't have enough momentum to make it all the way over, you can fall down straight into your wing, and it'll you know wrap up around you. So there you are falling <laughs> from the sky like a rock, and you've got a wing wrapped around you. So you try, have to try to get out of your wing and throw your reserve, because I don't think you're really going to get your wing reinflated at that point, because everything's going to be so tangled up. I saw a video once where a guy, he must have been a couple thousand feet up, he was over the ocean, I think. Uh, he was just a paraglider, and he gift wrapped himself and was falling, and just falling and falling and falling, and then slowly you see him emerge from the bottom of it, like somehow he cut his way through the wing because wow. a lot of people carry a hook knife with mm-hmm. them in case they were to get tangled up and they need to be able to cut loose like that, or if uh, everything went terribly wrong and you end up landing in the water somehow, and you had to cut yourself free in the water. Um, so I think that's what happened is he cut himself free and then was able to throw his reserve on top of it. So it was, it was crazy. And the photographer managed to stay on the <laughs> on the guy falling the whole time <laughs> instead of dropping to the camera to the ground like people always do in the fail videos. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, that, that was a t- intense video watching that guy fall. So that would be my huge fear trying one of those. So the most common, I guess, way to get out then would be cutting yourself free because I imagine – once once you've gift wrapped yourself, you're 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 already falling, and so the wind is forcing the wing up around you. And there, it'd be better to try and cut your way out the bottom than try to, I guess, push the wing out of the way. Yeah, I don't know because you got to worry about the wing and all the lines too that are twisted mm. around you. Because like I said, there's mm-hmm. probably twenty or more on a side. I guess I I never counted them, so I don't know, but. Yeah, you could just get all snagged up. Hmm. So, yeah, that's been my adventures in paramotoring so far. At some point, hopefully I'll get good at some aerobatic stuff. Right now I'm uh, working on, like I said, wingovers and then just basic stuff like... You know, every time I land, I try to land in as precise an area as possible. It's called a spot landing. Just land on a spot. Mm-hmm. 
First of all, because you really look, you really know what you look like, you know what you're doing if you can land, you know, on target. Mm-hmm. But then also, if you can land where you want to land, close to your vehicle, you don't have to walk as far after you've landed to get back to your vehicle. And then if you were to ever have an emergency, like a you know, engine out or something like that, and you had to put it down in a small field, you could do that more easily without, you know, maybe running into trees or whatever. So the, the, I have one more question, and I think... You kind of mentioned this when you were talking about training in the small field on the farm. What What is like the smallest size field that you could safely take off and land in? Yeah, like let's well, say so let's say someone it. wants to take take off and land in their backyard. Like just imagine mm-hmm. that. Like what kind of a backyard do you need? Yeah, I think at least a hundred by hundred be nice. Um, there have definitely been times where I've run a hundred, hundred or yeah, probably probably a couple times where I've run close to a hundred or more. Uh, if the wind is not very uh, cooperative or not blowing very strong or whatever, so I would say a hundred by hundred would be nice to have. Um, a lot of my takeoffs are, you know, I'm running forward and I can get off the ground within fifty feet, but then you also got to plan for, you know, your your climbing rate and climbing over things like fences or mm-hmm. trees and stuff like that so you gotta have your open grassy area but then you gotta also have uh you know clear clear be clear of trees and power lines and stuff around the area and then for landing if you're going to be consistently landing at the place probably 100 by 100 but if it's going to be an emergency landing and you can put it in on the spot like people can make spot landings and they can land in a you know five by five square <laughs> Um, so, you know, I mean, you really don't need much to land, but, uh, if you don't time it just right and you end up gliding for a while, you could end up needing a lot more space. One thing I learned from watching a video of an actual paraglider because they don't have, uh, motors. So they, you know, they just have to line everything up perfectly when they're coming into land and plan it perfectly. He was saying, you know, a lot of times you gotta land in a field or whatever, uh, after you fly out of the mountains. And you got to make sure that there's not a, a downslope. You're not landing downhill because if you end up out gliding the slope of the ground Ooh. and, and uh, ending up in some trees at the end, like you might have plenty of room to land, but the ground is sloping away from you faster than you can come down. And uh, wow, you can't, you can't get down before you run into the end of the, end of the field. Would you be able to? So something you got to watch. Out would for. you be able to make like a a turn to correct for that if if you? get into that kind of situation would you be able to turn to one side to go along i guess parallel yeah you would try to but you know ideally you want to land directly into the wind because it's going to slow you down and give you the most you know or the slowest uh speed at landing mm-hmm. um and also if you start to turn one side is going to come down quicker than the other so you're trying to land sideways and you're like your wing, you know, like you're not parallel to the ground, and your wing is being being trying to be blown off course. So, landing sideways is not ideal, but that's what you'd probably have to do in that situation. It'd be it'd be the the lesser of the two bad situations. <laughs> yeah, there was a time once I remember, and I, I've got scratches in my frame from it. I came into land, and the wind must have been blowing a little bit off of where I thought it was, because as soon as I landed, I just got pulled off my feet and dragged on the concrete a little bit. Thankfully, it actually happened in winter, so I had a couple of layers of coat on, because otherwise my arm would have been turned into hamburger. Wow. Because that that coat got pretty ripped up, and like I said, the frame got some scratches on it, because I, I don't know, misjudged the wind and didn't come in straight, or it switched at the last second. I'm still not sure what happened, but yeah, I got dragged a little bit when I hit the ground. So, 
when you're in the air, is it easy to tell the wind direction? Yeah, well, if you're not sure where it's coming from, all you got to do is either try to fly a straight line and see which direction you get blown, or try to do a turn, and that'll show you real quick which direction you're, you're getting blown off course. Like if you're trying to turn around a point and keep an equal distance all the way uh-huh. around, you'll, you'll see real quick which way the wind is blowing. But then you can also look for uh, signs on the ground, like uh, you know if the grass or the trees are blowing in the wind, or flags, okay. wind socks, or smoke is a huge indicator. So you don't necessarily need to be landing at like an airport with a wind sock if you just want to land. Oh, no, no. Field. Okay. Yeah, and usually, usually you can assume that the wind is blowing the same direction as when you took off, but sometimes it's not. Uh-huh. Uh, there's one airport that we, uh, actually the Richland Center Airport, uh, where sometimes we would go to do some training. Uh, it's a larger area, but so you'd be taken off during the daytime. Winds are from one direction, but then at night everything uh, calms down and there's no wind. But the air that starts cooling down gets funneled down from the hills, I guess, and starts blowing a different direction sometimes than the way it was during the day. So as the cool air sinks down, you know, to the lower areas. Hmm. And so there was one time I was trying to take off and my wing just would not come up. And then somebody pointed out to me that the wind had switched directions completely. Hmm. It was, you know, only like a two or three mile an hour breeze. But if you're trying to take off the wrong direction, that'll really mess you up. That's interesting. Yeah, so... Just always try to, you know, usually it's coming from the same direction as when you took off, but try to look with little indicators on the ground uh, when you're trying to land. Mm -hmm. I have a small windsock that I take with me that's more sensitive than the larger ones that they have at, uh, you know, at at an airport, so I can see the little variations in the wind, so that makes that easier. Nice. If you don't have a windsock before you take off, you can just pick up like a little handful of grass or something and drop it and see which direction it gets blown, mm-hmm. things like that. And during takeoff, you want, you want to take off directly into the wind if possible because that way you get a high wind speed and low ground speed so you don't have to run as fast. Right. So you would lay out your wing, which you think would be perpendicular to the wind, and then you do what's called building a wall so you grab your front lines while you're facing the wing. So you would be facing the wrong direction for takeoff. And then you would you pull up your front lines, which are A, the lines are uh, grouped and they're lettered. So you got your A, B, C, and D usually lines. Uh, and they're usually color-coded. And they all come into the risers and they clip, you know, they, they hook into the risers uh, in different segments. So you would grab your front lines, which is the A lines. That's what uh, helps the wing inflate when you're, you know, you pull on those and pulls the front of the wing up a little bit to help it catch wind mm-hmm. so you would do what's called building a wall so you just pull on those lightly and it'll catch the wind and bring the wing up and it'll start coming up crooked if you're not exactly into the wind so then you just step toward the high side which reduces tension on those lines and increases tension on the lower side of the wing uh, which would then put you straight in line with the wind okay so that's how you set up for a takeoff so are there any places that you've you've had in mind that you want to travel to with your paramotor like cool places to fly just yeah well of course there are places that are not allowed like it would be super cool to be able to fly past uh, like mount rushmore or things like that but of course not allowed to fly over national parks um so there'd be a lot of cool places i would love to fly but can't but then i think it would i would just love to take my paramotor out west and just fly over a lot of the 
western terrain you know a mm-hmm. lot of it is really cool but it's not necessarily in a park or anything like that mm-hmm. so uh, tucker got on youtube actually has uh, some videos about cool places he's flown out there so yeah i would love to be able to just take it on vacation with me and then just pick you know places along the road that would be so neat fly. yeah other than that i don't know that there's really anywhere specific that i want to fly just i'd love to just take it all over and fly mm-hmm. it's really cool when you're you know looking at the terrain from above like just flying from here out to la in a uh like you know a commercial plane you can see so many just drastic changes in the uh the scenery and the topography and stuff on the way out there mm-hmm. so it's so cool to be able to stop at these places and actually fly from wherever and and see the different types of terrain different trees rock formations and things like that yeah well, that has been my experience um, paramotoring so far. I'm uh, two and a half years into it, so hopefully the next two and a half years will be full of even more adventures. And, um, yeah, maybe we'll check back in then and see where I'm at at that point if I hadn't killed myself yet. No, I'm just kidding. They say paramotoring is as safe or safer than riding a motorcycle, so you know people are always concerned about uh, you know whether or not it's safe, and actually it is quite safe. Because when you have an engine out or whatever, you just land in a field. So anyway, trying to do this outro without getting sidetracked. So thanks for listening. Um, our inbox is completely empty of um, listener uh, listener emails. So go ahead and send us an email at uh, enthusiasticwitter at gmail.com. If you got comments or questions about the show, whatever, we just want to hear from you. We're checking our analytics, and it says that there is an estimated five people listening. So, you know, that'd be really cool if we heard from even just one of you. Uh, That would be 20% of our listeners writing in. (laughs) Also, it said in the analytics that there was somebody from Ireland listening, which we thought was pretty cool. So, if you're from Ireland and you're listening, or really anywhere right into us we'd love to hear how you found about about the show and what you think so far so thanks for listening talk at you later bye since when do you count up <laughs> what difference does it make you don't count up well i do you don't know when you're stopping when you're counting up well, typically you stop at three. Alrighty. What kind of pants are you wearing in that picture? <laughs>